with a pretty obvious, it's a little, little loud. I talk loudly, I'm sorry. I talk loudly normally, so then when you give me a mic too, it's just explosive. <laughs> I'm going to start my message off this morning with a pretty, it's kind of a given. It's a statement that no one's going to really argue with, but as human beings, we are constantly interacting with and in relationship with other human beings. Now, I want to make it clear that as we talk about this idea of relationship today, I'm not just talking about romantic relationships. That's obviously part of it, but also relationships with your family, relationships with your friends. We have relationships with just even acquaintances, coworkers, the person who serves you coffee in the morning. And few things can cause as much difficulty in any relationship as false assumptions, unvoiced expectations, and misperceptions. So let me give you an example. <clears throat> Back in my hometown, there's a small, locally-owned cafe. And on their menu, they offer an iced cappuccino. Pretty standard drink for at a cafe. However, if you went into this cafe and ordered their iced cappuccino, expecting it to taste like a Tim Hortons iced cappuccino, you would be very sadly mistaken. See, while a Tim Hortons iced cappuccino is creamy and syrupy sweet and a little bit of coffee flavor, the iced cappuccino at this cafe is made with espresso, ice, and milk. That's it. It's blended together. It's strong and bold, coffee-forward. It's not sweet at all unless you ask for it to be sweet. Now, if the cafe employee does not explain their iced cappuccino to the customer and the customer does not ask the employee about the iced cappuccino, there is a lot of different ways that this situation could go wrong and lead to a situation of bitterness in the relationship between the employee and the customer simply based on assumptions and misperceptions. See, both people have a perception in their mind of what an iced cappuccino should look like and should taste like. The customer assumes that the employee knows what they want, and the employee assumes that the customer knows what they want. Once the customer takes a sip, their perceptions can shift again. Perhaps they now perceive that the cafe employee messed up the drink. Maybe they forgot to add an ingredient. Or maybe they now perceive, oh, clearly this cafe does things a little bit differently. Either way, this can lead to tension and dissatisfaction. The same is true in our deeper relationships. What people think about us, assume about us, or expect of us is often dictated by their perception of our words and our actions. So let me explain it in a slightly different way. One of the things that I've struggled with most in my marriage with Natasha is sometimes I perceive that Natasha is angry or upset, and immediately I assume, without even cause or reason, that she must be upset at me. Is anyone else guilty of doing this? Yeah. Thank you for being honest, Terry. I appreciate it. Yeah, I immediately assume she must be upset at me. There's been many a day where I've noticed that something is kind of off in her personality, and immediately, before she's even said anything, I get defensive, you know, I get snarky, I get my own bad mood going on, I get resentful. In reality, most times, she's just had a bad day. Sometimes it's my fault. But most times, she's just had a bad day. In this case, my perception dictates my assumptions and my response. 
Now, I'm starting to get a little bit better. We're almost two years in now. And now, if nothing else, I know to just at least ask her if she's mad at me. And usually, she'll tell me uh, rather than just assuming. See, communication is key because when it comes to perception, our actions speak even when we say nothing at all. Our actions speak even when we say nothing at all. Now, the early church in the first century faced a lot of negative perceptions. Many of the Jewish people hated them for saying that Jesus was God's son, which they thought was blasphemy. Many of the Romans and the Greeks hated them for calling Jesus king, when in their minds that title should have only been given to the emperor. There was even rumors swirling around at one point that Christians were cannibals, Completely serious. They must have overheard some Christians taking communion, as Mike was talking about, and thought that the Christians were literally eating human flesh and blood. But this was a rumor going around in the first century that Christians were cannibals, when really they were just taking communion. Into this realm of Christians being hated, or at the very least misunderstood, the Apostle Peter writes a letter. He writes a letter to Christians far and wide to give them some encouragement and also some direction. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. It's also going to be up on the screen in just a minute. Now, as I've said before we start reading, this letter is written to Christians. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're very glad to have you with us this morning. And I think, again, I've said this before, but I think this is a great Sunday for you to check out church, uh, because this passage we're looking at will give you a great example of what the Christian lifestyle should look like. And also, it'll hopefully inspire you to maybe look into it a little more for yourself. As I said, we're going to be reading First Peter, we're going to be in chapter 2. And at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, Peter starts the chapter by reminding his readers of the importance of their identity in Christ. He re- reminds them of the value of the mercy that they've received. And we're going to pick it up starting in verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read 11 to 17. (coughs) Pardon me, sorry. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor or to the, as the supreme authority, or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone, Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Now, the overarching topic of this section could be phrased as live godly lives. But there's so much more to it than that. There's a lot of content in these seven short verses. So once again today, we're going to be breaking it up into smaller sections and taking it verse by verse. You may have noticed in your bulletin or on the screen a moment ago, I titled this message, What Would It Look Like If... And I purposely left it with a dot, 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 question mark. What would it look like if? And that's because I want to spend some time at the end of the message getting really practical and thinking about what our church and our community, our city, and even our world could look like if we lived out this passage. 
So we're going to go back to the beginning. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear God, no, not dear God, dear friends. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter starts this verse with dear friends, or in the Greek, it's actually the word that translates beloved. He loves them. It's important for us to remember that Peter is writing out of love and concern for his friends. The next word it says is he says, I urge you. This word could be, I, another word would be exhort or encourage or I call you to action. So if you're a parent in the room, the first time that maybe you let your kids uh, stay home alone or the first time you let them go hang out with friends unsupervised or the first time you let them take the car, it's like, I've taught you what I can. You know how I feel about things. I can't control your actions, but I urge you to make good choices. I can't make you do this, but I hope you will because I care about you and I want the best for you. That's what Peter's trying to get across here. Dear friends, beloved, you know how I feel about things and I urge you to take my advice. He says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, and we're going to come back to that in just a minute, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. This is so much more than just don't do bad things, but what he's really saying is, Grow in self-control to avoid giving in to earthly or bodily temptations. Now remember, Peter is writing to people who are already Christians. He's reminded them of their identity in Christ, and then based on that identity, he urges a change in lifestyle. Now what's interesting is there would have been non-Christians around them at this time that would deem this sort of lifestyle as admirable as well. There was a philosophical group that was popular in this time called the Stoics. And they taught that it was very valuable to be able to deny yourself. To be able to deny your earthly desires. To show self-control and restraint when it came to desire. Now the obvious one that comes to mind is, is sexuality. But this also included things like violence. Acting out in fear or anger. Being controlled by your emotions. Any of those more carnal or animal instincts. So where nowadays, if you tell someone that you're abstaining from sex outside of marriage, most people assume you're either lying, crazy, or joking. A Stoic may have said something like this. I respect that you have such control over your body, your actions, and your desires. So there's people around that would have respected this sort of lifestyle. And what Peter is really calling these Christians to is just that, having control over their actions and their desires. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans uh, or Gentiles or non-Christians that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. As I mentioned before, there were plenty of negative perceptions of Christians at the time that Peter was writing. Some thought Christians were suspicious. Some thought Christians were superstitious. And others full-on hated them because of their beliefs and their practices. Does that sound familiar at all? While it's believed that this letter was written before the Emperor Nero publicly sanctioned Christian killing, it was still very common at this time for Christians to be publicly shamed or slandered. The natural reaction to this sort of negativity would be, as any of us would feel, anger or the desire to argue or to retaliate. 
But instead, what Peter urges is to be the bigger person, to live a life of goodness and virtue that would, in action, prove the rumors to be wrong. He takes it even further and says, live such good lives that the non-Christians might turn to and glorify God. I can't help but think here of our dear brother Derek and Lynn and their story. And I remember hearing it, I think the first Sunday we came to Oak Ridge, that Derek saw such a change in his wife Lynn's life that he thought, I need to go and investigate this church thing for myself. I don't know if I'm getting that story completely accurate, but it's pretty close, I think. Their family story is a testimony to the fact that one of the best ways to point someone to Christ is by living a Christ-like life. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We're never going to be perfect, but through God's grace, we can live a life that points onlookers to the love of Jesus. Now, a little earlier in verse 11, I skipped over a phrase, foreigners and exiles. In another version, it might say resident aliens or visiting strangers. This expression goes all the way back to something that Abraham said in Genesis chapter 23, in the very beginning of the Bible. And in referencing it here, Peter is reminding his readers that since the very beginning, God's people have often been called to be set apart, to live as strangers or exiles, in many cases physically in the Old Testament in places that were not their own, but also spiritually. Here Peter is most likely alluding to the fact that a Christian's true citizenship is in the kingdom of God, which we talked about in our Philippians series. This means that as long as we're here on earth as Christians, there's going to be customs, practices, and values in our society that we're not going to agree with and we're not going to partake in. There's a Bible commentator by the name of Karen H. Jobes, and she says this. Uh, It's going to be up on the screen as well. Uh, She explains it like this. Peter conceptualizes the relationship of Christians to society as that of visiting strangers or resident aliens, those who appreciate, respect, and value their hostland, but nevertheless maintain their own distinct identity within it. She continues, however, he does not condemn all values um, and customs of culture and advise withdrawal from it. So he's not saying just pull back and be a hermit and disappear from society. But what he's suggesting instead is live by Christian values and when they conflict with society, be willing to graciously endure the grief and alienation that will inevitably result. As Christians, we're always going to look different. There's always going to be choices we make that other people don't agree with and vice versa. Live as Christians, live by Christian values. When they conflict with society, be willing to graciously endure the grief and alienation. So another way of saying this is, as Christians, we are to engage with culture. We're to show self-control when facing temptation. And we're to live our lives in such a way that the people around us are pointed to Jesus. Let's continue into the next section. We're going to read 1 Peter 2, 13 to... Let's just do 13 and 14. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Before going into the what of the next few verses, Peter starts with the why. So he's going to explain what, but he starts with the why. He says, for the Lord's sake. 
It's not because I tell you to, and I'm Peter, and I'm awesome. I walked on water once, you know. I'm going to build a big cathedral in my name. I'm Peter, so do what I say. It's not because of the rules, but for the Lord's sake. Out of a desire to serve God, you should, he says, submit yourself to every human authority. Now, this is one of those verses I know I don't like. A lot of people don't like it. Even Christians, people in the church, tend not to like verses like this. It's like when Jesus said, love your enemies. We were talking about that at youth this week, love your enemies. And one of the kids said, but what if they're really mean? It's like, yeah, I I don't like loving my enemies when they're really mean. I don't like submitting to human authority. It's like, did Peter really just say, submit to all human authority? It's like, Andrew, isn't this the same Peter who in the book of Acts said, we must obey God rather than human beings? Yes, it's the same Peter. He said, in one part, he said, we must obey God rather than humans. But here he says, we must submit to human authority. And he's not contradicting himself. In fact, what we see in the life of Peter, through his words and his actions, is that unless the authority over us commands us to do something that is specifically against the teachings of Jesus, we are to obey and submit to them. So when Peter made that statement that we submit to God not humans. He was being told not to preach in the name of Jesus. He said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. But here he says, unless you are being told by your authorities to do something completely opposite from what Jesus would desire, we are to submit to and respect them and obey them. So who are those authorities? He says the emperor and the and, and the governors. But for us, it's maybe if you're a kid or a youth in the room, it's it's your parents, it's your teachers, your coaches, Probably the people that you don't really want to listen to that often. But it says respect those authorities. For us adults, it's our supervisors, our bosses, our law enforcers, our elected officials. I know it's easy to say as a Christian, I submit to Christ, not the laws and the government. Or this government doesn't represent me. Hashtag not my president. Especially in a day where less and less of our local and world leaders have any interest in Christian values and morals. But here Peter writes about submission to the emperor as the supreme authority, where we can think of our govern- of our, our leaders, our world leaders. And you might be thinking, well, these, these emperors were obviously godly men. That's why he says to submit to them. No, quite the opposite, in fact. Many of the Roman emperors were not known for being nice people. I mentioned a minute ago the emperor Nero, who's known for literally publicly sanctioning, like, governmentally, the murder and slaughter of Christians. He made it law that you could just go and kill Christians because of their beliefs. Not the kind of guy you'd think of as a godly man or a godly leader. And many of the others weren't much better. Yet here Peter says, submit. Now, it doesn't mean we have to like them. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them. It doesn't mean we shouldn't stand up for justice and truth and virtue. It doesn't mean we can't hold our leaders accountable. We have a right to be involved in our political system, and we should use it. But what it does mean is realizing that loyalty to Christ is not license to rebel against our leaders simply for being ungodly, as Job's explains. Loyalty to Christ is not license to rebel against our leaders for being ungodly. In verse 14, Peter continues and mentions submission to the governors who are sent by him, the emperor, to punish those who do wrong 
and commend those who do right. Here we can think of our law enforcers. So it's unfortunately submitting to that police officer when you're busted for speeding. Submitting to the police officer when you're busted for texting and driving. It's respecting and abiding by the law. These first century governors were tasked with ensuring that wrongdoers were punished according to the laws of the land. But you may have noticed Peter also mentions commending those who do right. I don't think we often think of our law enforcers in this way. I think often we think of our law enforcers with regards to punishment rather than praise. A few years ago, I don't know if anyone ever witnessed this, uh, because every time I tell this story, people are like, what? Um, But a few years ago, there's this thing. It might still be a thing. I don't know if it is. But the OPP and some local police departments decided to try and change their perception so that people thought of them more as rewarding good behavior. So they put forth an initiative to reward people for obeying the law. It was little things like sometimes they would give out coupons for a free Dairy uh, Dairy Queen ice cream cone if they saw like a kid or a teenager biking with a helmet, because technically that's the law. They would say like, oh, good for you, kid, for wearing a helmet. Here, have a free ice cream cone. Or they'd see people waiting and crossing at an intersection rather than just jaywalking, and maybe they'd give them some, a coupon for free fries. I remember once I was driving and I went through a ride check, and they gave me a coupon for a free McDonald's coffee. Like a, I think it was like a large coffee, too. I know. Just for not drinking and driving on a Sunday at 12.30 p.m. on my way home from church. I was like, man, I need to not drink and drive ever because they're going to give me free coffee. It's great. Coming home from church, of course I've not been drinking. It's 12 in the morning. What are you talking about? Give me a free coffee. It's a nice touch, even though it probably didn't change much. You know, I can't picture a teenager sitting in their garage looking at their bike thinking, I should probably wear my helmet today just in case there's a police officer handing out free ice cream. Probably didn't change much, but it's a nice idea, and it slowly maybe started changing that perception. These governors in the first century were supposed to commend those who did good. When connected back to the previous passage and the next one, which we're going to look at, it's as though Peter is saying, by living good lives and submitting to authority, even the governors may notice and commend you for your lifestyle. Or in our context, Christians should have a reputation as those who obey the law. Verse 15, For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Another way we might say this is, live your life in such a way that those around you don't have anything bad to say. This pertains to our words, our actions, how we submit to authority, everything. Now, the message of Jesus is always going to be divisive. There's always going to be people who don't like Christians just because they don't like some of the things that the Bible says. Things like, Jesus is the only way to heaven. It's not a super popular thing in our world today. Things like, Jesus should come before everything, including your family. Not a super popular thing. The whole idea of final judgment is not a popular thing. These are topics that are hard enough for Christians to deal with, let alone people who don't subscribe to the same belief system. But what I believe and what Peter is alluding to here is that if people have bad things to say about Christians, it should be because they don't like what the Bible says, 
Not because Christians are terrible people. Not because Christians are jerks. Not because Christians are breaking the law or telling people that God hates them. If people have a problem with Christianity, it should be because they don't like the truth of God's word. Not because of us. As Christians, if we wish to represent Christ well, we shouldn't give those around us a reason to question our integrity, to question our compassion, to question how we treat people, how we submit to those above us or graciously lead those below us, how we respect and follow the law. So for example, a little funny example here, it's probably not the best idea to stick a Jesus fish on your bumper and then spend your drives speeding, texting and driving, tailgating, and cutting people off and flipping them the bird, okay? If you're going to put a Jesus sticker on your car, a Jesus fish, please don't be spending your drives like this. It gives us a bad reputation. People shouldn't have reason to question our integrity. Verse 16, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. <coughs> Pardon me. Live as God's slaves. Sometimes, as Christians, there can be a temptation to use God's forgiveness as an excuse, to take God's grace for granted. It's that temptation to say, oh, it doesn't matter what I do, because God will forgive me anyways. Or maybe it's, you know, I've already been saved, I know I'm going to heaven, so what I do in this life doesn't really matter. Peter says, no, don't do that. Do not use God's grace as an excuse. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up. If you've chosen to ask for God's forgiveness and salvation, you are making a choice to follow Jesus and submit to his authority. Because he has freed you from sin, you are now free to serve and obey him. And verse 17, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Here Peter gives a list of four fairly straightforward actions. It's like he's saying, if you want to live this way, here's four steps. Here's four places to start. Show proper respect to everyone. Everyone. Even those we disagree with. Even those whose lifestyle we don't like. Even those people we don't like because they're not nice to us. People who don't respect us. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Jesus tells us to love everyone and Peter isn't contradicting that and saying, just love the Christians. But what he's doing is reminding us that we should be showing special love and care to the people in our community. If someone in our community is hurting, we need to be there to support them, to encourage them, to bear their burdens, to lift them up. Love the family of believers. He says, fear God. Show him the reverence and glory and obedience he deserves as our creator. And he says, honor the emperor, or in our context, respect and submit to those in authority over you. Live your life in such a way that people around you are pointed to Jesus. Now I want to return now to our discussion on perception. Because a huge part of what Peter is talking about here is that if we actually obey and follow Jesus and live lives that publicly display love and respect for people, that perception can change. Right now, the perception of Christians in our day, in our world, doesn't seem that different than the world that Peter was speaking into. Sometimes people think we're pretty suspicious or superstitious, and sometimes people full-on hate us 
for our beliefs and our lifestyle. If you're a Facebook friend with me, you may have seen a post I did last week. And basically what I did as kind of research for this message is I wanted to ask all of my non-Christian friends and my non-Christian acquaintances um, and even some random people on some chat groups for response to two questions. Number one, what are your perceptions of Christians, maybe based on your own experience, based on experiences you've heard about, based on the media? And second, what is your understanding of what a Christian's actions and lifestyle should look like? I thought it'd be interesting to hear, you know, I have all these Facebook friends, they know I'm a pastor, they know I'm a Christian, what do they really think about Christians? Here's some of the responses I heard to the question of, what are your perceptions of Christians? And these are just some key words that stuck out to me, but they're pretty shocking. Hypocrites. Don't look anything like the person they claim to follow. They're pushy, shunning, judgmental. They seem to always be telling me how to live my life based on Christian values, even though I'm not a Christian. You can't have individual thoughts or differing viewpoints. Unwelcoming, intolerant. We don't hear about the good ones, only the bad ones. They don't follow the Bible perfectly, yet they condemn others. Threatened by education. They put God in a package based on their own personal beliefs. Friends, in some ways, it doesn't even matter if these statements are true, because if this is the perception of Christians in our world, that matters. Now, obviously, this is just responses from a few people. This, I'm not saying this is what everyone thinks. This isn't a full-on research study. But these are some of the things that I heard from just some of my friends. With all that's been going on in the news over the last several months, particularly with regards to two issues, immigration and gun violence, I don't know how many times I've seen someone saying something like this. Well, if only pro-lifers cared as much for immigrant children and gun violence victims as they do for unborn babies. Or maybe they say something like this. The only way white evangelicals would care about these kids is if they were still inside their mothers. I've seen these posts multiple times from people who think that we only care about abortion, or we only care about homosexuality, or we only care about these hot-button issues, and they think we don't care about kids. We don't care about people being injured. And friends, I don't think for a moment that these kinds of statements accurately describe most Christians. I'm not trying to make us all feel like we're terrible here. But this is the sort of perception that we're fighting against. And these perceptions usually come from some sort of truth. When it comes to these public controversial issues, I shouldn't need to explain that no matter where you land politically, Jesus wants us to have compassion and love for people. No matter where you land politically, Jesus wants us to have compassion and love for other people. And people outside these walls know that too. Check out some of the responses I got to the question, of what should a Christian's life look like. And these are all coming from non-Christians. These are the responses I got. They should be constantly fighting for the underrepresented and the poor. They should be living out the words of Jesus, following the Ten Commandments, embodying selflessness, community, and love. Kind, good, open-hearted. Treat others the way they want to be treated. Fully put their trust 
and faith in Jesus in every aspect of their life. This person must have experience with the church in some context. Constantly working towards letting God speak into their lives. When non-Christians understand that being a Christian involves following Jesus in every aspect of our life, but their perception is that Christians don't do that, we have a big problem. When people outside these walls know that we should be loving and caring for the marginalized and the poor, that we should be kind and good-hearted, but their perception is that's not what we are, we have a problem. This doesn't mean we need to be perfect. And in fact, our imperfections can often open the door to conversations about God's grace and his mercy. But friends, a question we really need to be asking ourselves, and I've been struggling with this myself this whole week, is am I living a life that reinforces these negative perceptions or one that challenges them? Am I living a life that reinforces these negative perceptions or one that challenges them? What would it look like if Christians were known for their love? Their compassion. Their respect of the law and authority figures. What would it look like if Christians were perceived as welcoming, as caring, as generous? Make it a little more practical. What would it look like if your coworkers thought of you as the person they could come to for support? What would it look like if the people who sit around you, even at church, knew that they could come to you for prayer and encouragement, accountability, even when dealing with struggles of secret sin or something in their life that makes them feel really ashamed? What would it look like if we didn't feel like we had to put on a mask of happiness when we come to church? What would it look like if church was perceived as a place where anyone can come as they are and they're met with the life-changing love of Jesus? What would it look like if Christians looked like Christ? These are the things that we need to be striving towards. And I'm not saying that we're not doing that, but these are the things that we need to be encouraged to strive towards. I know it's easy in these times to get defensive and maybe turn to blame. Well, you know, if it wasn't for those radicals in the States, or people only think that because of the media. It's the media's fault. Or, well, you know what? Truth be told, maybe it's everyone else in my church's fault. I'm living this right. If everyone else would just get it, then we'd be fine here. It's funny how we all seem to think that at times. There may be some truth to those statements, but these are situations that are always beyond our control. We can't control what other people in this room do. We can't control what people in other countries do. We can't control what the media puts out. There's always going to be people front and center who give Christians a bad name. But what would it look like if the people around us didn't listen to those stories because their perception of Christians was shaped by us, by people who are loving, who are caring, who they can come to for support and acceptance and prayer? Those people who shared their perceptions and answered my questions, those are people in my social circle. I have an opportunity, and in turn, I have a responsibility to do what I can to have an impact in their lives in the name of Jesus. This is on me. <laughs> and I guarantee that you have people in your life who have similar perceptions whom you have an opportunity to impact as well. There's a quote I want to end with today, and I'll end on this. And it's a quote I heard years ago, and I looked forever to try and find who the author is, and I couldn't find it, so 
Just know that I didn't make this up. But it says something like this. Nowadays, most people won't pick up and read the Bible, but they will read you and I. Let's hope we're an accurate translation. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a tough one. God, it's hard to not be emotionally affected by 